Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 600 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. Also check out the other menus on the site. There's a bunch of different things, audio podcasts and so on. Maybe I'll say this at the beginning, but it helps the YouTube channel to have a lot of subscribers. And if we break the 100,000 mark, we will get some kind of extra support and all from YouTube. So if you feel like subscribing, click the subscribe button. And also that little bell that you, that shows up after you click the subscribe button, if you click that, then you're kind of like a super subscriber or something. And they, they notify you of everything that I do, which is just one interview a week. Also, this whole enterprise, this program, is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's a, also a donation page on the site, which explains options other than PayPal. My guest today is Amita Cole. I've known Amita for a long time, kind of remotely. I used to be on her mailing list. I'm not sure if she's still sending it out or if I somehow slipped off it, but she was sending out these great poems, and I'm really not much of a poetry reader. I've always found that my mind tends to wander a bit when I'm reading poetry, but I really found hers very readable and, and enjoyable. Um, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. Rather than read a prepared bio, Mita and I will start talking. I'm just going to let her introduce herself and her background and We'll just take it from there. So, welcome, Amita. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm glad welcome. to be here. Yeah, yeah, good to have you. Really <clears throat> good to be here. You live in the Boston area, which yeah. is not that relevant, but good area. I've always liked the Boston area. Had some adventures Great. there. And so, how did we end up having you on this show? What, what is it about your life that and obviously I know the answer to this, but for the sake of the listeners, what is it about your life that brought you to this point? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, well, you know, I, I grew up in India, and I came to the U.S., settled here in 1997. And oh, shortly after recently. that, very recent, 22 years ago, yeah. And uh, my father, almost as soon as I arrived in the U.S., he was diagnosed with cancer. And then very shortly after that, he passed away. And there was something about the timing of that diagnosis that just hit me so hard because I had this absolute knowing inside of me that he was going to pass from it. It was devastating, to say the least. It tested me to my full limits. There was nothing I could summon within me to deal with that. And... Um, it just, in a sense, now looking back, I can say it kind of broke me open in a in a way. It sent me scurrying off to find, um, you know, books and just things that I could read to feel a little peace inside, to make peace with what was I knew was going to happen. And um, a year after that, he passed away. And uh, the shift which happened then just kept paving its way in my life and introduced me to more and more of that depth. It's not the first time I've heard somebody say that the death of a loved one, sometimes quite a sudden and unexpected death, really cracked them open and, and somehow yeah. kick-started a, a spiritual journey or deepened their spiritual journey. 
Yeah, and then um, did you have much exposure to spirituality in India, or didn't it interest you that much? Yeah. Well, I come from a family which has an odd mix. Uh, well, not so odd. Great, actually, it's been great for me. So on the one side, we are very sort of rationalist, scientific, a lot of intellectual curiosity. And then uh, there was the other side, which there was um, a fair amount of devotion, devotion to God, to our sense of God, as also a sort of um, philosophical curiosity. So I grew up with these kind of threads in my life. I found that in, on my path, they really helped me and, and came together in ways that were very sort of useful for me. Mm-hmm. I think also a part of growing up in India is because there are just so many influences all around you. You know, it feels almost like there's uh, spirituality suffused in the air in many <laughs> subtle ways that you kind of end up imbibing. You don't even know you're imbibing. Yeah, it's very uh, true. The first time I went to India, I guess it was 1980 or 79, just landing in the New Delhi airport, which is not the most spiritual spot in the country. But, um, you know, just coming out of the airport onto the sidewalk, there was just something in the air. Uh, just kind of like, wow, you know, I've heard about this, but I, I could really feel it. There's just something in the air. Yeah. Besides the pollution. Yeah. I mean, there was some kind of spiritual presence or something in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a lot of people in my life, uh, my grandmothers to start with, most importantly, mm-hmm. who really had that devotional um, aspect, which drew me so much as a child, because I would sit in their laps and listen to the most amazing stories of the saints in India mm-hmm. and, you know, all these wonderful tales from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and everything. And I used to be fascinated. I could listen for hours. Yeah. And every time, every time they visited, I would be pulling at their saris to, to you know, to have one more session. And, and you know, so, um, you know, there's a way in which all of this can really get inside you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> not too many of us have that kind of thing in the West, at least not in your tradition. I kind of wish I had. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid... We were dragged to church once a week, and I had no idea what it was about, and it just kind of ruined my Sundays. And, you know, it was not until quite a few years later that I realized, oh, that's what it's about. (laughs) You know, we had our share of that. Like, I remember as a child not being a fan of, we didn't have too many ritualistic things going on in my home, but I was never a fan of the rituals. Mm. So I I probably felt that way about the rituals. You know, I I didn't want any part of that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The stories were great, but. So once your father died and it gave you this jolt, what what was the sequence of events that, you know, kind of proceeded from yeah. that? So I think at that time, it really kind of shifted the locus of my life in ways that only registered in my awareness much later. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had come here, I had just arrived in the country for a job here, a job opportunity in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And my family... Uh, my husband and my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, we all decided to come to the U.S., and we thought it was going to be a five-year adventure, mm. uh, <laughs> and that we would go back to India. What kind of job? Expen- what kind of work are you in? In those days, I was in technology, in business automation systems. Okay. I was trained in something in my job in India that was really uh, picking up as a market worldwide, mm. and so that's how we came here. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of a strange period because on the one hand, I had a very, fo- I had a focus. I had to pay attention to my career. And almost immediately after landing here, you know, with my dad's death, it was kind of a very challenging place for me to negotiate those two worlds. Yeah. So I ended up spending the next four or five years nose down in my career. And then it just became too much. And I, I started to realize that my heart was not in mm-hmm. it, that something was off. And 
you know, I tasted some success in that. It just felt hollow. On the one hand, like I was saying, my academic conditioning from India and even to some degree, my family conditioning, I was told that success was a great thing to have and material success. And, you know, it, it felt to me like, oh, this is going to answer some questions and going to deliver something. And even my first real taste of it left me feeling less than really underwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. I think from that point, it was like a U-turn. It was just like, no, my whole life cannot be about more of this. <laughs> so I'm glad it happened like that, you know, because there was an intelligence to it. It kind of exhausted something in me. Then I remember this one time when I had to tell my husband, look, I'm not able to lift the phone to me. And at that, by that time, I was running my own small business. Mm. And I said, I cannot do this anymore. I just need to have, I don't know how long to read and to figure out what's going on with me. And he was very supportive. And that's exactly what I did. So I began to read everything I could lay my hands on that my mind was seeking to have by way of answers. And I read psychology and philosophy and spirituality and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I came upon a vast array of people. The one that really struck a chord for me back then was Ken Wilbur. Oh, yeah. The thing about Ken Wilbur is he's so, most people would agree he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely brilliant. And unbeknownst to me, there was this kind of like a thing, uh, almost a little battle waging inside of me between my, I guess, my intellectual side and my spiritual side which I was not very conscious of till Ken came into my life. And I realized what he showed me was that somebody I admired so much was effortlessly including spirituality into his language, into his life and speaking of it so eloquently in a way that appealed to both my brain and my heart. And He's good at reconciling those things. That was important for me to, to come to that point in myself. And very shortly after that, I kind of came to the end of my time with him by which time I first heard Adyashanti, mm -hmm. thanks to a friend of mine who introduced me to him. And the first time I heard him, um, it wasn't like he is my teacher. Absolutely, he has been my teacher all these years. But that first time I heard him, there was a resonance. But it wasn't like I knew this is my guru or my teacher. But I realized after two months, gosh, I've been listening to this person for eight to ten hours every day. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... That's when I said there's more more to this than just <laughs> than what seems apparent. And of course, there was no looking back from then. Um, I've just been so blessed to have him in my, in my life. That's great. As my teacher. I was listening He's to great. him when I got the idea to do this show. I was I was out in the garage working on a Bowflex machine, you know, one of those exercise machines and listening to Adya. And somehow the thought popped into my head. I should do an interview show. <laughs> yeah. And one thing led wow. to the next. Yeah. So you would still consider Ajay your teacher? Yes, I do. I think he's my trail guide. Uh -huh. You know, he's, he's uh, as far as I see it, he's up ahead on the journey and he just uh, uh, turns around and keeps sharing things from up ahead, yeah. <laughs> which are so useful and uh, amazing. So, yeah. I like the way Ajay, well, he's very down to earth and what you see is what you get kind of a guy whether you're, you're with them in a public situation or a private situation. I think that's one reason people like him so much. He doesn't kind of whitewash his life and try to make it any more glorious than, you know, him. he's just, you see, you know, what you see is what you get, as I said. And, but he also has this open-ended attitude, like, you know, curious, he's always exploring and learning. His house is full of books with little book tabs in them. And he's always, what's next? 
you know, open-ended inquiry kind of thing. That's great. Yeah. I just love that about him. He's like you said, he's just so grounded. You know, it's such a beautiful thing to have because, you know, I've been exposed to so many as, as all of us have mm-hmm. many spiritual teachers and it always feels like they may not be holding it like that in them, but just because of all the trappings that one sees, it can come across as something that's special. And with Adya, that thing gets busted right off the bat because yours is, you know, he just so grounded and real. We can even dwell on that point for a minute. On the one hand, if you met the Buddha, well, you're supposed to kill him if you meet him, but according to that saying, <laughs> <but, laughs> yes. you know, or Christ or somebody, you would say, hey, man, how you doing? You know, like, whoa, let's have a beer or something. There would be a certain deference, a certain respect and, and even devotion and honor. and Their personality warrants that. But on the other hand, some teachers seem to get off on that and mm-hmm. to cultivate it around themselves and to encourage students to worship them or kiss their feet or, or whatever. And then the dynamic starts to get a little unhealthy, I think, a little weird. And, you know, obviously devotion is a good thing. You spoke about that about your earlier life. And uh, we don't want to squelch that. So there's a kind of a balancing act, I think, between respect and and devotion, and yet a healthy relationship with the teacher, both for the student and for the teacher, who, if he or she isn't really as mature as, as he or she might be, could himself get warped or corrupted by all that adulation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that what my relationship with Adya as a student has been is to I recognized, actually, it was actually watching one interview you did with, I think her name is Jan Frazier, but I could be wrong about yeah, this. Jan. She but lives up in Vermont, I think, not far from you. Yeah, I think not far from me, right? And uh, there was this episode where the thing you did with her, where she talks about her fear dropping out of her system. This was many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I happened to attend a, an evening satsang with her here in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. Fear has been a thing for me growing up quite a lot. So this really drew me when she talked about this. And I remember being at her satsang and midway through it, I just had this big insight come into me, which was like, what am I doing here? You know, because she was describing this story, which is quite an unusual story about how it suddenly dropped out of her system. Mm -hmm. And there was something in me that was attaching to that as a way of uh, dealing with my fear. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, you know, here are the ways in which I'm putting that possibility away from me because I'm associating it with such an imp- a story that is not likely to repeat for me as it was, as it played out for her. Hmm. I remember you Jan know, just- had a story about where she was in a canoe or something with her husband and they almost drowned or f- could have drowned. Was that the story? You know, I don't remember the details of the story. All I remember is that she had this uh, big fear and then almost in one minute or something very short, you know, something happened and that fear just dropped out of her system. And I could even be wrong about the name. (laughs) That's the thing that gripped me in that whole thing and uh, in the whole story. This is what I realized. I realized that how is this connected to? Yeah, because I wanted to say that there's a way in which we project things on the outside Mm -hmm that are ours to own when we are ready to own them. For me, this was what came to the fore with Adya. It was like I trusted him completely in what he was presenting as, what he was presenting resonated with me. So I think what happened for me was I I said, okay, Adya, you hold what you you point to be mine, and I know 
to be mine. You hold it for me because I'm unable to do so for now. You know, what do you mean by that? Then, clarify that a little bit. Well, the knowing that I am this present being awareness. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean and asking him to hold it? Because I could see it more clearly at that time in him than I was able to see it in myself. I see what you mean. It was like, you know, I almost was saying to him, you are my teacher. You carry this for both of us (laughs) for now. (laughs) Because I'm not able to for whatever reason. And, you know, that's the path Mm -hmm. where I became ready to take back that which he was holding for him, which I asked him to in becoming his student. You asked him um, verbally or um, just uh, mentally? So that's how I see it. It's like we... We're using two ways of keeping this, our own true nature, away from us. We're either projecting or procrastinating. Huh. And why would we want to do that? Because we would have to face a fear if we wanted to plow through the fear and get actually get to the living experience of it? Yeah, I think there's something in us that's perhaps not um, ready right off the bat to own this thing that is so feels so immense, so out of the bounds of our own uh, reference frame. And we get struck by all manner of fears, like fear of being much greater than we thought, fear of being nothing. Depending on how we're receiving this, there can be so many different fears. And uh, we are so conditioned to think of ourselves in a certain way, to perceive and receive ourselves in a certain way, that we are afraid to budge that and move that. And then comes along this, this whole spiritual thing which threatening to undercut all of our ideas of ourselves. Mm. It's a big thing, right, to kind of grapple with. So I think it's a it's like a journey of being prepared. And it's wonderful to have a teacher who will not only hold it for you, but then this kind of circles back to what we were saying. Because it felt to me like my teacher held it for me with the clear knowledge between us that one day I would hold it uh-huh. for me. And he encouraged that all through. So yeah. whereas you know you can there are teachers out there that that might even want to you know, and, and everything's fine. It all serves. But sometimes there can be situations where there can come a possessiveness about that. <laughs> because it's kind of enjoyable to have that status, perhaps. I don't know. I know what you're saying. I think listeners will, too. Yeah. In other words, I think some teachers make an effort to reinforce the dichotomy between their status and their, their students' status. Ultimately, I think a teacher should want to have their students achieve as much, if not more, than whatever they've achieved in terms of their awakening. What's the whole point of it otherwise? Right, exactly. Teachers are custodians. I see them as custodians of what the student has not yet realized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whoever Einstein's professors were, they should be pleased with themselves for having turned out such a student. (laughs) Although I think they thought of him as sort of a a troublemaker, which also is a a relevant point, actually, because sometimes if a person is conformist in their thinking and just sort of whatever the teacher says, I mean, this is another one of those paradoxes. On the one hand, you want to sort of align your thinking with that of the of the master, if you're in a guru-disciple relationship. But on the other hand, there, there comes a time when the chick hatches from the egg and needs to leave the incubator. And right. very often a certain kind of independence of thinking, or almost you might even say a little rebelliousness, begins to bubble up. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's like this idea of sovereignty. And to me, that's very much part of the part of owning one's true nature, is that I think that at some point, it does kind of 
form into this sense of sovereignty. At least for me, the way this played out was I always had that inkling of a sovereignty all along, even though I was a student of Adya's, not least because he kept pointing to it. There was not this idea that I was going to follow everything that he said, because everything was being checked out in my own experience. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it was my own experience that, you know, that proved if to me if something was resonant for me or not. And I found this uh, this to be kind of a useful way to orient in my relationship as a student. Yeah, there's a great quote from the Buddha, which you just more or less paraphrased, where he says, don't believe anything just because somebody says it. You know, even if I say it, you should check it out in your own experience, in your own understanding. That's a paraphrase. Because, I mean, it's an important point we're dwelling on. There's this thing about sovereignty and owning it and so on. It's interesting that you said Adi was going to hold it for you for a while, but eventually no one can live your enlightenment for you any more than somebody can eat, eat right. dinner for you. You know, you ultimately it has to be your experience. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's not going to satisfy you, even if someone could hold I mean, decided to yeah. be, <laughs> hold it for like you. Like with the dinner it analogy, you could starve to death while others do your eating for you. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of sounds like maybe there was a process whereby the sovereignty shifted, you know, it kind of shifted from Adya holding it to you holding it yourself. Yeah, it really did. It's was there any of, kind of abrupt uh, shift or was it more like a, a thief in the night creeping up? Thief in the night. Yeah. Thief in the night for me. It really was a very gradual thing. Mm -hmm. It was punctuated with, with experiences and with some things that seemed very stark and something that one can actually point to. But for the most part, I would say that the journey has been such that the contrast was never between one day or one week and the next week was never so dramatic that, you know, it presented as this mind-blowing experience yeah. <laughs> that I could recognize. So things were kind of recognized in retrospect some, mm -hmm. sometimes, like. No, that's really well put. Yeah. That's my experience, too. There have been some cool experiences along the way, but basically in terms of the, whatever the stable state is, it's always just sort of been a, an incremental maturation of sorts. Yeah, and it, you know, in 2017, I was drawn to go to Taos. It was an interesting time because I had reached a sort of a point in my spiritual life, in my life in general, where I felt like I needed not just an internal change, but sort of an external change. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed to go. And so I spoke with a friend of mine, you know her, Susanna. Oh, yeah. She's a good and friend. She, yeah. And so she suggested uh, Taos to me. And We're referring to I'd Susanna Marie. Did she live there already? No, she was in California. Okay, then. she's there now, yeah. Yeah, she's in Taos now, right. I hadn't heard of Taos even before. Mm -hmm. And she described the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram to me, which is there. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a Hanuman Temple mm -hmm. and so on. I did a little quick search and something about Hanuman's eyes really drew me. Uh. And uh, <laughs> I decided that I was going to do that. It sounded really exciting and out of my comfort zone and everything. And things just worked. And I landed up at this ashram and I did save out there for a month. And then I sort of stayed um, at another place for another month. But that's where I had an experience which kind of was the was something that showed me uh, the cumulative effect of what had happened in the prior years oh. in, a, in a way that I could not miss. I feel like there can be changes and shifts happening in one, especially if one is on the gradual path, that sometimes one is not consciously aware, aware of, you know, like, and then something might have to come to 
to bring it into perspective because then what started happening, okay, so I'll, I'll share a little bit about what happened is Taos Mountain is where the town of Taos gets its name from mm -hmm. and she is a magnificent being, Taos yeah. Mountain, to me. Mm -hmm. And um, every evening I was called, just I was drawn to go out uh, for a walk. At, there's a place uh, about a mile from the temple where I was, used to, I was staying, where I could see her at a distance across the meadow. It used to be a really powerful one hour for me as I'd be walking up and down and just getting darshan from Taos Mountain, uh -huh. you know, literally. And there was something going on between us that was just so powerful. And what I received was she actually called me. I mean, it's kind of odd to describe because it, a lot of this became clear once I started writing about it and so on. This but is the way like Ramana talked about Arunachala, you know, similar relationship, it sounds like. Yeah, it was just so beautiful. And she called me to see the mountain, to own the mountain in myself. Huh, interesting. And now when I look back at everything that happened in those months and following the, those months, I can really see how that was a way for me to recognize and to articulate even to myself the shifts that had been happening all those years. Yeah. You know? Sort of almost like a recognizing of the sovereignty that had bloomed in a way mm. that I could really start looking at and becoming conscious of. And then when one becomes conscious of it, I think one can join it more consciously. The game is upping itself in some way. Yeah. So let me see if I can get you to be a bit more explicit about all that. You were on the path for a long time. And there was all this gradual, incremental growth, but you don't really notice it. Like the old, I hate this analogy, but the frog in water that gradually heats up, you know, and it doesn't jump out because the water is heating gradually. Some people have dramatic breakthroughs. I've talked to a lot of them, but I think the vast majority of people... It's just like we said, you know, there's this gradual development and maybe sometimes it's pretty fast development, but still it's not like explosions, you know, there's just continuous growth. But if you could leap suddenly, speaking in my own experience, if I were to suddenly leap from the way I am now, the way I function now to the way I did 40, 50 years ago, even though I might have been happy and functional 40, 50 years ago, relatively, I'd probably die from the shock of it because the contrast would be so... Great. And conversely, 40, 50 years ago, if I could have leapt to where I am now, I probably wouldn't have been able to function because I would have been <laughs> lying on the ground drooling with bliss. But you develop as you go along and you acclimate, you acclimate over and over again. So in terms of your own situation here, when the, the relationship with the mountain or whatever happened there in Taos happened, it sounds like it brought the whole thing into focus and you were able to sort of get yeah. your bearings relative to the journey you had been on. So could you elaborate on that a little bit more? What um, kind of changes did you finally realize that you had undergone? So just prior to my going to Taos, I'd just been coming out of a four-year illness, quite a grave illness. Oh. The pattern would be that I would fall very badly sick for about four to five months mm -hmm. in the year. And then it would kind of wane and then the cycle would repeat. And when I say very bad, it was really bad in many ways. So it was a one aspect of it was an extreme form of eczema. And then there were other things going on. But Your skin really looks uncomfortable. nice now. That's good. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. But, you know, it was pretty rough yeah. in, to the point where I used to. And this was my learning curve. For me, Rick, it was about really coming into my body much more. Hmm. What the illness did for me was for me to turn my attention towards form. Hmm. 
until then you were disembodied a little bit before i was a little disembodied and you know i was grooving sort of the emptiness thing was much more prominent Mm -hmm. for me this illness really got my attention in a way that it took me deeper and deeper because you know there was nothing really that was a cure for it Mm. you know everyone i went to just said we can manage it that's the best we can Mm do all I really did in those months was to be in sort of contemplation and meditation and inquiry all the time yeah. because I didn't have the energy to do much outside. So it took me really deep and it allowed me to see what was wanting to return to the body. Mm-hmm. That was at once really difficult, but very beautiful. Beautiful in the sense of everything started to become visceral and embodied and just so gritty, mm-hmm. you know, just like real. And I could feel the joy emanating, you know, whereas I used to perhaps consciously and mostly unconsciously look upon body as the theater of suffering. It transformed, it became this joy started coming into the picture unexpectedly. And I began to look upon body as, a, as this wonderful thing, like yeah. this theater of joy. Temple of the soul. Temple of the soul. And it just came online in such a big way for me. And then came the call to go to Taos. And I think what happened in Taos was, I got in touch with larger body, my larger body, Mm. physical, my larger physical body. Mm -hmm. And I was really deeply called to Mother Nature on that trip in a way that I've never been called before. I I grew up in urban Mumbai, Bombay, Mm -hmm. in India, surrounded by uh, concrete structures mostly, and um, didn't really have a close relationship with nature. But in that trip, that really changed. And I became so attuned to so many things differently mother nature and my what I'm calling my larger body and I saw my illness in a different way and I saw these things of how what had been seen or recognized wanted to start being embodied in the body in life in this real way I came into contact with that so viscerally with that experience with the mountain everything has to balance out in the end you know we spoke of Ken Wilbur earlier and he has his idea of lines of development. You know, we have all these different lines of development and some people's lines are stretched out this way and others are stretched out that way. Different intellect or body or heart or senses or different facets of our makeup. I think force of evolution impels us to advance all these things and have them all come into balance so we're not really stretched, you know, with one way out in front and the others all dragging behind. So what you're saying about coming into the body, somebody else might say the opposite. They were too much in the body and they needed to get into the spirit more and you know, into the transcendent. You know, what I've come to see in retrospect about my, my life is that I think I came into this life with this sense of emptiness. That's what it feels mm-hmm. like right now. <clears throat> Looking back and just seeing how things unfolded for me, I just feel like this lifetime, if we want to call it that, has been about coming into form, Interesting. about coming into form in the fullest, deepest possible way. That's what it seems like this life journey has been about. I can see why I was drawn to Adya, because for me, he represents this emptiness in form. I get the most clearest transmission of that from him. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder that I was drawn to his teachings. So I hear what you're saying. and There was obviously a sense in the human way that, you know, there was his body and, you know, all of that. So... It might be like what you're saying, that there can be a point in the journey where your 
form is form, and that's what you're aware of mostly, which is your form. Yeah, people say, and you then, know, you this know, is you what can, I am, this, this meat puppet. And, this is what I am, this mind-body right. thing complex. And then the first part is where you get stripped of that idea of yourself <laughs> as form and come to something which is much more subtle or yeah. all the way down to emptiness. And then you pick back up because that's how the journey goes if you pers- you know, if you go on mm-hmm. further, right? I mean, where you come full circle and what was recognized as that deep, subtle self starts to come back into form. So certainly it played out like that for me in the human level, obviously. But like I said, it feels to me like even as a child, I had this, I don't know how to describe it. And that's going to be part of um, what I'm going to be sitting with for <laughs> for my next. I want to write about this mm-hmm. and, and um, allow it to sort of form it, itself into words. I suspect I'm not the only one for whom this is happening. And I would love to be able to articulate it in a way that perhaps others can relate to it and, and maybe look at their own journey from that perspective. It was kind of feeling like my human form, even at the time when I felt when I didn't have any knowledge of emptiness, I had a very ambiguous relationship with form in general. So when Adyas, when I came into his meditation technique, I took to it like a fish to water. Something felt very comfortable with that emptiness thing all along. So then for me, it was much more about coming into body and, and it was slow, but that's what the direction seemed to be for me to be coming into body more and more and more and more. Sounds like you might have been a Shunyavadin in your past life, a Buddhist monk who emphasized emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. I've just been taking some classes from Swami Sarvapriyananda, and he, he talks about these two tracks of philosophy that go back thousands of years between the people who sort of emphasized fullness, Purnavadin, Purnavadins, and then the Shunyavadins who emphasized emptiness. Mm-hmm. They're kind of flip sides of the same coin because you could look at it either way. You know that saying, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Yes. So you can see it either way, but I think sometimes right. people get too much emphasis on one or the other and they yes. lose the ability to see it both ways. Absolutely. And, you know, that's been a very, very key thing for me. This has been the mantra that's been playing out in me, which is emptiness and form is form is, form is emptiness. Right. What is that, the heart uh, sutra or something? Voice, that that's called? Heart sutra. Yeah, yeah. And I hadn't heard this till Adya introduced it to me. Uh-huh. But as soon as he said it, it felt so resonant in me. Yeah. You know, it was just like, wow, I, I've known this. Like, I'm, right. It has guided my journey. I feel like it's really been the underlying direction of my journey all along. So I hear what you're saying about that. I remember attending a silent retreat with uh, Adya and... During that silent retreat, I had this time where I was sitting. It was Omega in New York. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been there. But I haven't, but I know where it is. This, yeah, there's this particular little pine forest. It's kind of a circle of pines with an empty place in between. And I'm sitting there and I just had this really beautiful coming together of, I just had this knowing of how the two are one. And that was the beginning of this coming together of emptiness and form mm-hmm. for me. And I felt it as this experience in my heart. I came back and I had the opportunity to ask Adya about it. But, you know, I said, it seems like I've known emptiness all my life. I've known form all my life. And I just felt how they came together right here. Of course, I mean, we had a lovely dialogue from that. But from that moment on, that particular thing started really growing in me. It started to come alive in so many ways and be seen that way. Uh, My experiences started to become about that, about the meeting of these two. Mm. 
in a way that I could experience in my heart and in my body in sort of a visceral way. Did it um, impact your behavior at all? I mean, when you were in the emptiness phase, did it make you more withdrawn or aloof or disinterested or anything? And then when you when you integrated it more, did it change your outward behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, very early on on the journey, there was a part of me that felt like it had exhausted. The, there was no motivation left in terms yeah, of everything yeah. that my life had been about. Mm-hmm. So I sort of came into the journey, into the formally into the spiritual path at the point where I had lost all my motivation for the life I had lived prior to the journey. So that is one way in which I, you know, that manifested and then that continued. I just wasn't feeling interested. I'm a, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a wife. And so there was that part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I could I could do the thing. I, I was I, I, for my daughter's sake and so on. I there was I I was social. I could carry on that aspect of my life, but inside of me there was really no uh, juice in it at all. And so I was leading this life, this inner life that was so much more rich and for me so much more compelling. Mm. So um, what started to happen more and more was the two started coming together. Like I I could see the what felt like very separate things in my life, you know, where I almost felt like there were certain rules for how I must appear on the external in society. And then there were my free space inside where I could yeah. experiment with all this that's going on inside me. I don't know when that territory began to merge, but it did begin to merge mm. and something started to loosen up. And there was more translation from that inner space into the outer realm. Mm into my social interactions and so on. There was a freedom, I think, which started coming in where I didn't feel like I had to restrict myself to certain expressions or I wouldn't be allowed. Or There were certain ideas about that which got busted along the way. Hmm. How old is your daughter and now? Also, oh, she's 27. Ah, well, raising her must have <laughs> helped to keep you grounded. I'm so grateful for having my just a regular life that kept me grounded and kept things real. Also, my whole interest in spirituality was uh, driven by this. I seemed to want something that translated into living. That was always very important for Mm me. Just having this life where I could test in small ways, you know, it didn't, it wasn't even so much of a decision. That's how it was playing out. I would have some realization or some insight and immediately I would get to see how real it was in the next interaction with my husband and my daughter, you know, with all the things that I was doing, right? Yeah. So it felt like it was such a help. It was fine-tuning something. That's really good. A lot of the spiritual traditions have been maintained by monks, and they put a certain spin on it and almost made people who are not monks feel like they're second-class citizens or something, you know, because they're not going for the gusto the way the monks are. But yeah. monks can get very imbalanced and out of touch, idiosyncratic and obsessive and eccentric and, and all that in a way which you're not allowed to if you're in a family situation the way you are because you're interacting with other people and they're going to kind of call you on it or oh, yeah. pretty much force you to get real if you're not. Right. And my daughter used to have a line because... You know, I'd get angry with her or something. And she said, Mama, that's not very spiritual, you know. <laughs> because she knew I was, you know, I would talk to her sometimes about the stuff I was reading yeah. or experiencing. And 
She was one to catch me each time. She said, that's not very spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just say it's a little bit of your, your Shiva opening his third eye and better watch out or it'll burn <laughs> you to a crisp. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the monks. I feel so grateful. I feel so grateful for the different kinds of paths and emphasis that we have in each path mm -hmm. because I think it all builds on each other. Yeah. It's perhaps because the monks from various traditions were able to devote all that energy and time and attention to something so deep that we stand on their shoulders and we stand on each other. You know how I mean? It's like yeah. I do feel these things support each other mm -hmm. at levels below the surface yes. that allow different things to be explored deeply, more deeply. Yeah. If we think of Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenetic fields, if you've ever read about that, but basically it's mm -hmm. the idea of the deep field of consciousness or collective consciousness and so on. And, you know, what you're saying is we all contribute to that field in various ways and all these different traditions have enriched it each in their own way. And now, you know, with yeah. the internet and with all the modern communications, the interchange has become much more manifest. I think there's some kind of hybrid coming out of it all that's maybe in a way an evolution from the ancient traditions themselves. Yeah, I do feel like there's a lot of innovation happening. Yeah. One view is that we are simply in each age, we are rediscovering what was already discovered mm -hmm. through all the ancient cultures. And I feel like there's an aspect of truth to that. Yes. But that every cycle of discovery has its own contribution mm -hmm. to the whole. So I feel like I experience these times as so innovative spiritually. I mean, there's so much going on. And Rick, your show in, in no small part is contributing to the spreading of these views and perspectives. We're all doing really. what we can. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's a saying, only a new seed can yield a new crop. And yet there's that other saying, nothing is new under the sun. There's all this ancient stuff, but we've been talking about integration and having to integrate the inner experience with the outer. And I think whatever wisdom there may be in these ancient traditions, and there's a lot of it, it's not necessarily perfectly adapted to modern times. There has to be an integration and an adjustment in order for the full value of it to be utilized in a very different culture than the cultures in which these things originated. Right. So many modern spiritual traditions really have this open space where new things can emerge. We're just reinventing what is already here mm -hmm. in one sense. And yet, so much creativity can happen. So many new things can emerge. New forms and structures can emerge. New ways of receiving the same message can emerge. Yeah. I really feel like that's something that perhaps differentiates certain you know, an attitude towards religion versus spirituality. I think people are drawn to spirituality because there's that innovative, creative aspect, a relevancy with the times, which sometimes we can miss out when things are deeply systematized yeah. in such a way that they may not be able to be questioned and made relevant for current times. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And also yeah. what we were saying earlier about you have to live your own enlightenment. Somebody can't live it for you like they can't eat dinner for you. And, you know, a lot of the religions emphasize, oh, this religious leader was so great, and that one was so wonderful, and all oh, this saint was so fabulous. But what about you? What about me? Yeah. Whatever they experienced isn't going to do us a heck of a lot of good unless we also experience it. And I think that's what they wanted. You know, they didn't want to just say, believe what I say. They were really saying, experience what I'm experiencing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's where the juice is, to use a word you used a little earlier there. Exactly. Yeah. There's something we discussed earlier that 
uh, we could flesh out a little bit more. You were just talking about how, as you progressed over the years, there was a, definitely a growth taking place, but it's hard to tell exactly how much growth there has been because there's really not a big contrast from day to day. And uh, another thing you were saying about fear and how there's a sort of a deep fear, and there may be other deep things, but fear is one of the most fundamental we can't just necessarily say, all right, I'm tired of that. I'm letting go of it because it, mm -hmm. it's much yeah. deeper than that. I don't think people should feel there's anything wrong with them if they can't just sort of snap out of the condition they're in and be enlightened or be awake or something. And there are teachers who speak as though they should be able to do that. But I think there's really a developmental process that has to take place, which is not only psychological, but neurophysiological, and the whole mind-body system has to be cultured over time in order to support the kind of experience that we're talking about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've heard you talk about it on your shows, where you talk about a certain amount of a level of preparation that the body-mind needs to be mm -hmm. in, in order for this, what may be recognized or realized in an instant still has to translate into time and space. And so there's both the aspect of having a certain readiness in body-mind to be able to have that happen. And then there's also the aspect of that this thing itself is infinite. And so it has infinite expressions. Mm -hmm. Even after the body-mind is prepared or ready in a certain way, this will be an ongoing thing because it constantly has room to express more and more deeply and more fully. I feel like there's both of that. I do have a lot of empathy for people who may be in situations where they receive a message where they, you know, it's like even in spirituality, the mind can hijack actually our own internal attitude to life in general and really just transfer it into our attitude towards spirituality. In other words, we can get really harsh with ourselves if we are not doing things right, the meditation right, or, you know, if we're not having certain realizations when they should occur, we can get pretty harsh with ourselves. I just feel a lot of empathy for seekers. It feels to me a tough job sometimes. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to have this phrase he always used. He said, take it easy, take it as it comes. In other words, you know, Good don't try to storm the gates of heaven. It has to be a certain naturalness, a certain going with the flow. And obviously there's nothing wrong with intensity of motivation. But there's so many stories of people who just thought that they were just going to get enlightened in a, in a week or a month or something and just end up suffering a mental breakdown because they, they pushed too hard. In fact, Adya talks about that. He said he, he reached a point where he thought he was going to crack up. He left some retreat that he had been on because he thought he just couldn't mm -hmm. do it anymore. He went home and kind of gave up in a way, but then boom, he had this big awakening when he finally relaxed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a great story. Yeah. I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the fear and not needing to expect for any of us that things are just going to drop out, and they may for some, but there's so much depth to all of these issues. I mean, we can look at it in a horizontal way where the fear is either there or not, or we can look at it in terms of to what degree the fear may have left mm -hmm. and keep going deeper still because there might be, and there usually are layers and layers of fear that can exist deeper in ways that are still unconscious. I do feel like it's about almost excavating. Some things may leave us very quickly. For each one of us, the journey is different. For some of us, certain things can drop out of the system far more easily than other things might. There's a process aspect to this that cannot be overlooked, I feel. You may have 
heard that phrase from the Upanishads uh, that certainly all fear is born of duality. Yeah. And I think what that phrase means is that at the very, very root of the transition from unity to diversity, there's a kind of a, a sound barrier of fear that one has to break in order to make the transition back to unity. And a lot of people report that. Right. They, they report this. Uh, I've told this story before, but when Chuck Yeager first broke the sound barrier, no one had done it before, and they didn't know what was going to happen. And the plane was like shaking and shaking, and you know, and, and then finally he broke through, and it all got smooth, and it was just cruising along. <laughs> a lot right. of people report this kind of a thing, that there's this turbulence, and sometimes very mm-hmm. intense fear that arises as they're making that transition. I was listening to this guy who, when he was a child, he clearly remembered what happened before he took birth. And eventually he lost the memory, but then he regained it when he started meditating when he was about 30. And he remembered the whole process of coming into this life. And at a certain point, there was firstly this veiling that got thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker, you know, just blinding him, basically. But then at a certain point, there was also the introduction of this really root fear that he started to feel before he became a fetus in the womb. It's kind of the same thing we're talking about, but from the other direction. Right. Yeah, and I can really relate to that because one of the things that I had to really see at a deeper level, what my fears were about was coming to body at all. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just coming into human body, into this form, was something I didn't realize I had been fearing so intensely within my form that it carried a fear. It was visceral. Mm. And that was part of the discovery that emerged from my illness. You know, I knew that all along and it had been addressed, but I didn't realize the depth at which that fear was held. Of just coming into form. I just wanted to apparently not come into form at all. I was comfortable just grooving yeah. in the end. Well, if, whatever. if but, what this guy um, said is, is true, hardly anybody wants to come into form. You sort of want to because it's a precious opportunity and it's necessary for your evolution. But on the other hand, it's a heck of a, a culture shock to you know go from the state yeah. we're in prior to form down into a form. Right, right. And what it can mean for each of us when we contact it, because it's a collective thing. We can all relate Mm -hmm. to that. But I think it might have a very personal flavor to it for each one of us when we actually encounter it in our experience. It's like the same thing as fear of death. But this is the fear of life, in a sense. Yeah, interesting. You know, it's the fear of being informed. It can take on really particular tones. And I found that it was so useful for me to contact that and to learn how it wanted to show up and how it wanted to release a lot came to the fore from that. I think it's a big one for each one to encounter. It is. That's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. I sort of have, but you put it so clearly. Mostly people talk about fear of death, but then the flip side is fear of life, fear of coming into it. You know, most of the people who have near-death experiences all say that they didn't want to come back. You know, it's like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do I have to go back into that clunky old tiny thing <laughs> compared to what I'm experiencing now? Yeah. yeah. We've probably heard, all of us listening on the show, probably have heard of so many spiritual teachers talk about the courage it takes for us to be in human form at this, at this time, perhaps at all times, but particularly now. And I think that's the same thing. Something is really having to summon a lot of courage to take human form, period. Human form at this time, well, it's really fraught with challenges, as we know. And you and I have it pretty good. You know, we have a decent education and exactly. we have a comfortable exactly. life and good food and all that stuff. But I, I often think about all the people in the world for whom life is such a struggle and it's a shame that it yeah. has to be. 
Yeah, and so it's always a great interest to me of how the spiritual path that I felt so drawn towards all so many years, because simultaneously I have this, you know, I keep in touch with the politics of the day and yeah, so too. on, and I'm really interested in socio-political issues. Also, there's been a part of me that's been interested to see how those two come together, like what is going on and how do they come together. And that's been a part of how my contemplation and inquiry, Rick, which mm. is, you know, how does spirituality translate into living in, in our world? Now that I'm, I want to share more actively in the world, how can I bring that to the fore more? Because this is a concern for many and many people. And I'm finding the need to to speak to this more and more. You know, I've been sharing in small groups mm -hmm. for a while and something has shifted because in the way I'm sharing, there's much more of this element creeping up about how spirituality and our living situation in the world today can come closer together. Yeah. And we don't have to have reached some final stage in our spiritual journey for that to start happening. That's good because you know, nobody has. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Even our idea of a final stage, yeah. right? I mean, we don't have to hold off because I feel like these times are calling for more action by people who are more and more in touch with their true nature. This is a great time for us to be more active. In small ways, it doesn't have to be in, in big ways, but just even in terms of how we are living our individual lives. So what more do you have to say about that in terms of the societal or political, socio-political implications of spirituality? Well, for me, I've been researching this for more than mm -hmm. a decade. And what I've really come down to, what it's boiled down to at this point in my life, is really very simple. I think that an individual has more power than we mm -hmm. believe. What we say yes to and what we say no to uh, may seem very trivial, but it has an enormous impact. You know, what we are joining with our yes and what we are not joining, not contributing to with our no, is the way that we exercise what we know to be true in the most powerful way. This is something that can translate then into more visible and bigger movements on the in the external world, or it may stay simple and kind of smaller scale inside one's own life. Either way, I think it's of great importance to really be conscious of what we are saying yes to and what we are saying no to. I know this sounds probably simplistic from where I started with the socio-political thing, but for me to discover, you know, how can I be impactful yeah. in a way that is true for me, which where I can connect the dots. And this is what I have come to. And tomorrow it may translate into my joining some movement. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it, but for now, this is how it's playing out. Bringing this aspect when I share this sensitivity about combining spirituality with the state of our mm -hmm. world and also being really conscious of what I'm saying yes to and what I'm saying no to in my life, in small things to big yeah. things, you know, and just stumbling and doing all that, but picking, you know, just having that as sort of a guiding. Um, so, as examples, saying yes or saying no, would you? use Gandhi's movement in gaining Indian independence yeah. or Martin Luther King's efforts in uh, ending yeah. segregation as examples of not being submissive anymore, just saying, yes, this can continue forever, but in a nonviolent yeah. way saying, nope, enough of that. Uh, we're going to have to change things now. Yeah, I'm so inspired by uh -huh. Gandhi. I'm just so inspired by what he was able to do with such love but also I feel like another part of what he did, which is so inspiring for me, 
is that he was able to really utilize and leverage the strength of the ordinary human mm-hmm. being, ordinary Indian, towards a purpose that was in everyone's hearts. But just the ordinary ability of, of everyone to be able to join the Satyagraha marches, yeah. the protest marches, was simple. Of course, it did require courage because there was a lot, you know, there were charges and the British forces often responded in, in ways that were right. violent. So it certainly took a courage, but there was something really beautiful about his appeal to every single Indian mm-hmm. to call upon that which was their deepest aspiration, which was Indian independence, and utilize it like that. It, he wasn't looking for people with guns. He wasn't looking for people with some extraordinary powers mm-hmm. to, you know, and relying on those. But just what everyone has in themselves and calling upon that and saying, if you value Indian independence, here's how you can participate. That feels like just beautiful to me and inspires me for every, you know, for even for the state of the world that we are in today. It's that kind of thing where everyone, no matter what your level of realization is or whatever you're doing in life, if you are troubled by the state of our world and if you want the world to be a certain way, then I think it behooves us to start practicing that. And you see that in the way that uh, we're so polarized in our political views and so on. You know, one side is hating the other and the other side is hating. It doesn't matter which side, they're all hating <laughs> each other, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that's again where people who are on a spiritual journey might have a special little thing to bring in, which is why do we have to hate the other side? I have my political right. views, but it's really been an exercise for me to really be able to watch the other side and not agree, not even condone, but to really come to a place inside me of ease yeah. with it, of a place where I'm not literally cringing in my seat. And there's a feeling in me that feels resistant and it feels has a certain energetic quality in mm-hmm. my body is in a certain way. I will often deliberately watch or listen to the opposite political mm-hmm. viewpoint and treat that like an experiment within myself and allow what I know to be true to kind of play itself out in my mind body as I'm receiving this thing that I don't agree with. (laughs) See if you can watch it and and maintain your discernment without getting triggered. Yeah, and also allow that love to to see where that love goes. You know, like, what is it going to do now? What is it translating into? How is it feeling? And what is it feeling towards this person? I think it's a great way for us to to really uh, test out what we recognized in in ourselves. Yeah. I'm like you. I follow the news and the politics and various issues like climate change and this and that. I sometimes wonder if I didn't have this meditation background, how I would react to these things. And I think I might very well either become depressed or furious or I don't know. I was never the violent type, but I I can sort of see how people would be inclined to, you know, go and, you know, do something. Um, that gets them arrested, uh, just because these problems are so intractable. And many of them seem to be such clear manifestations of short-sightedness and greed and selfishness and small-mindedness and you know, those kinds of qualities. For instance, I, I watched yeah. this documentary the other night called Sea Spiracy, S-E-A, Spiracy. And it was basically mm-hmm. about the fishing industry and, and what's being done to the oceans, I, about the oceans uh, in general. 
it's like, oh my God, I mean, this thing alone could wipe out humanity. And then there's climate change, which kind of is dovetailing with that. But in every case, it's like these people who are only thinking about their next paycheck or their next meal or, you know, their bank account regard and with no regard for the next generation or the next seven generations or any such thing. You can see it yeah. kind of gets me going when I talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I can really empathize with that yeah. sentiment. And I also, I feel a lot of empathy for our human condition uh-huh. at this time, you know, on both sides, on all sides. Like we were saying earlier, it's no easy thing to yeah. live a human life. Yeah. It's fraught with so much <laughs> on both sides. I mean, it has amazing potential, but it also is fraught with so much of sorrow yeah, and, and suffering. Intense. And not just in terms of what we experience, but what we contribute to almost choicelessly. I mean, if we think about it, we're not really <laughs> all that much in control. To some extent, we are, and I feel like at this point where I am at this time, I just feel a real love for humanity and a sort of a sense of our frailty. Of It's like life has been using the human form to conduct an experiment. Mm. How could we have evolved any differently? Because everything that happens from having our own realizations, we know that everything is life expressing mm-hmm. itself. So even the best of our behaviors and the worst of them are all life expressing its intelligence through us. You know, we have this free will and through our free will, we're able to have all these experiences and make all these choices. So it seems like there's choice and like humans are making a choice and we are. And yet behind it, life is making spirit, God, however you want to call that. So. It feels to me like, on the one hand, we must take responsibility because we've obviously done things which are not helping the planet, are not helping the race, and are not helping any race, any species on our planet. So it's definitely not going well. But on the other hand, I think we have to have some sympathy for ourselves too from this viewpoint. So there is a way in my, my world where we can take responsibility without blame and do what we have to do call it what it needs to be called, but then work from that love. Because what if the attitude we hold, what if the attitude we hold is is even more important than the action we undertake? I want to say that one of the ways in which I really came to this this place in myself is, um, I know I'm bringing sort of a tangential thing in here, but I do want to say that is by being Being in nature. nature. You know, taking walks, and I've been for the last five years, been having this real deep communion with nature, and I go for walks, and I commune with tree and with mountain and rock and so on, and it's a way for me and uh, to get really, like, with my ear to the ground, yeah. and sort of sensing the currents of, I don't know what how to put it, but it's like the universe is mm-hmm. talking to us. And so there's, there's the news and everything that I read, and then there's this much larger sense and picture of life I get, like I'm putting my ear to a much vaster yeah. source, and I'm seeing things in a perspective that just the news alone would never give right. me, right? This might sound really odd, but one thing that I'm hearing is this forgiveness also from nature towards hmm. humans, because on the one hand, we are destroying forests and trees and everything in nature, and yet Perhaps life has this understanding that how could human life have evolved in any differently? I don't know that it could have. And if we take that view, then what remains to be done is to take responsibility without blame and to do what each one of us can do 
to our very best. I'm kind of reminded of Christ forgiving the guys who were nailing him to the cross yesterday, having been Good Friday. I can imagine nature saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. But nonetheless, they are doing it. I mean, he was being crucified, after all, and the environment is being destroyed, after all. And um, something's got to change. And one kind of idea that we've been flirting around here with and haven't quite expressed, and many people say this, that there is some big fundamental shift happening now in the world. It's some kind of global spiritual awakening and there are people who articulate it very beautifully and who also outline various trajectories it could take. You know, some of them really good in the long run, some of them disastrous, depending on how we play our cards. But I do think that, like when I watched that documentary about the ocean the other night, I thought, you know, on the level of passing laws and getting governments to do the right thing and getting businesses to do the right thing, it's hopeless. They're never going to do it. Something I've felt for 50 years is there really has to be a shift in consciousness. Consciousness is the most fundamental thing, and it's the only level from which it has the most leverage of any level. And if that can really awaken in the world, then all these other things will fall into place. Governments will just miraculously start (laughs) making the right decisions, and businesses will say, what were we thinking? Let's do it this way instead, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I feel that way too. And I, I do feel like something is happening. Even like in the last 10 mm-hmm. years to now, I think that people are in a place, we are all in a place where things are coming, spiritually speaking, more easily to us yeah. at this time. They're hitting the mark in us more easily perhaps than even 10 to 20 yep. years ago. It feels like that. There's something that's ripening to understand and to connect with deeper place inside us. And that's life working from that perspective, which you mentioned, which is, you know, I think we need to up the consciousness on this planet a little and so that things can start to resolve and get resolved. I feel like that's the place where it can be changed from. And that's the only place because that's going to govern the actions we take and how we take them. And there's strength in numbers. You know, the more people who do it, the easier it'll be to do. Like you were saying with Gandhi getting all the people on board with his efforts, I think there's something of that nature happening more and more with spirituality. It's just becoming more of a global phenomenon that was completely unheard of or practically unheard of back in the 40s and 50s. You know, maybe you had Yogananda and some people had heard of Ramana Maharshi, but it was just nothing compared to what it then became later in the 60s and then onward. And even in the 60s, it was quite innovative. And nowadays, it's really taken off. And that gives me hope. Yeah, me too. Me too. Part of my yearning and part of where I find myself right now is to talk of spirituality or, or the things that we recognize through spirituality in more and more ordinary ways, in more and more ordinary language. One of the things I found for myself is like I became used to a spiritual language, you know, how we can all become part of this thing where we are watching the same teachers and having the same thing said in pretty much the same ways. And we get used to a language of talking about spiritual experiences. And for people who are not familiar with that language, it's like Mm -hmm. another language and it takes a little while to learn that language. And I'm finding that what feels really apparent and noticeable to me is like the yearning for our depth feels like people are wearing it on their face nowadays or you know at least i feel wearing I spirituality on their each faces one. no just the yearning to discover our true uh-huh. nature like our depth 
it feels to me like when people are doing all kinds of things that they're doing, I feel like I can connect Rick with seeing that all of those things which are appearing as ordinary longings and yearnings are connected to something which is much deeper mm-hmm. in them. And that's the yearning to connect with the, our authentic self, our real self. So you so, see that really proliferating, uh, do you? I do. I do. How do you see and it? So Just in, feel, in media or things you read or how are you aware of social media? How are you aware of that? If you look at ailments like depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. and you know the addictions that we're having, rampant uh, addictions, yeah. to me, that's a cry for help a cry for something so much deeper than what they are, uh, what it's translating to in terms of substance or in terms of the emotional mm-hmm. setup. Something is calling from much deeper within to be yeah, recognized. Yeah. So for me, all these things are really deep indications of a much deeper mm-hmm. yearning. And we're seeing such a proliferation of all that. I don't know. This is my experience. I think people are just tired of what's happening in the world and You know, when things are all really comfortable and life is going really well, perhaps we are less connected with that deep aspiration for what is really true, because what is not so true is fine. It's comfortable. (laughs) But when things are not comfortable, I think that's one of the things of grace about challenging situations is that it really starts to bring to the fore this yearning of ours, which is otherwise lying kind of dormant, Mm -hmm. which is the yearning to connect with something more true, more real, like this questions of what is really going on? You know, what is going on? One thing I would like to do through my work is to really talk about deep spiritual concepts or experiences, but in ways that people can relate with, even if they don't know the language, yeah. even if they don't purport to be on a spiritual journey. So overtly. how have you begun to do that? One of the things I am doing is a program that I'm offering is sort of one of the examples of that. It's a program called Beyond Thinking mm-hmm. Mind. In this program, the idea is just to enable people to come into contact with the sense of there being something much vaster and deeper than thinking mind. So it doesn't have to be a deep spiritual realization that we're looking at, or it could be, but just the idea that our perspectives have become so boxed in with just thinking as the, our only most our most predominant way of knowing is yeah. thinking. And we're not so much in touch with our other ways of knowing, sensing, feeling, imagining, intuiting, having all these things. There's so many ways in which human beings can know. So it feels to me like our reality, life is giving us abundantly and we're going to the ocean with a cup. And then we're all suffering because we believe that there's scarcity, you know, that there's so much this scarcity Mm. consciousness, you know, where we're and grappling with that. And so for me, this program and what I would like to offer by in similar programs is a way of connecting with that in us which can receive life mm. abundantly. Because the issue is not that life is not abundant. The issue is that we are going to life with a cup, you know, with a small, with our thinking minds alone and trying to have everything come to us through that little mm. vessel, which is an amazing, beautiful, powerful thing. But it's still really small compared with our capabilities and our true potential. So through this program, what I'm trying to do is just introduce people to our hearts, our bodies, nature, things like that, that I feel can really open us up to a greater appreciation of our own capabilities to take in life and to receive everything that life is giving us. That's great. Very well put. Essentially, 
what we are is an unbounded ocean of potentiality, energy, intelligence, creativity, bliss. And like you say, though, we're just sort of taking a little tiny cupful at a time. But the body is the portal. The, the whole mind-body system is the portal through which we can actually become aware of that unbounded field and integrate it so that we have constant access to it. We are it constantly as our individual. We are the ocean as our individual wave continues to play about on the surface. Yeah. I mean, that's not yeah. a new idea. People have been talking about that kind of thing for a long, long time. But like you say, I, I think sure. maybe it's time for people to wake up to it more universally. Yeah, and in simple ways, you know, there's so much to be gained from just a small shift of perspective mm-hmm. also. Because we love ideas and thinking mind is such an attractive thing. It also brings about this real disembodied life where we can be so disembodied and, and we're taken over. To me, it explains a lot of how we are functioning socially too. Because we can be carried away so easily by ideas. We're so susceptible to ideas from one side coming and grabbing us and then ideas, you know. If you look at what's going on with social media and the ability of influencers and the the kind of influence these influencers have by one mere message uh, in somewhere in social media, to me, is tied with this. You know, it's like when we're not grounded in the body, when we're not connected with something more stable and our only frame of reference is the shifting thing, which is our Mm. mind, you know, we can easily be grabbed by the latest idea or something that has some appeal to us. It's not rooted. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, that we won't dwell on it because I've dwelt on it too much, but that gets us into the whole conspiracy theory idea where, you know, yeah, people yeah. are, they're not grounded and they're brainwashable. You know, they're susceptible. They, they hear some, they get something in the social media, sort of, you know, the algorithm guides them into focusing on it more and more. Next thing you know, they're, they're just totally hypnotized by it. Right. And it's, it's really yeah. kind of a problem in society these days. It is. And we have this kind of a a little bit of a bias about thinking mind. I mean, in terms of we're all biased towards rationality, you know, and we're looking at this in terms of spirituality being as coming to the realm of the non-rational. And for many people, that can be construed as irrational instead of perhaps post-rational, you know. And this is something that Ken Wilber really brings very beautifully to the fore, you know, in his whole pre-post-fallacy thing. So that's something that I really want to be able to share through my work is this whole idea that the kind of stuff that you are talking about most of the time, Rick, and what we are talking about now is not about opposing rationality. It's about including it and going beyond rationality, post-rationality, that is capable of including much more and rationality. Yeah, it can only take you so far, but you never have to abandon it. It just has its function. And so in those wars, sometimes we see this attitude that all of the non-rational lumps together and sort of put under one bracket of crazy spiritual woo-woo stuff or something like that. Uh, It's all kind of combined with the shadier aspects of what might truly be pre-rational. And so I think there's a lot to be looked at over there. The really great spiritual teachers, Shankara, Buddha, and others, they definitely didn't downplay rationality. I mean, they they were clearly talking about something that transcends the intellect, but they also emphasized using the intellect to think in a discriminating way. Shankar wrote that book, the Vivaka Chudamani, the crest jewel of discrimination. And it's so obvious how a person can get off the track if they fail to sharpen that instrument. 
so many examples. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I really relate with that. You know, we were talking earlier about the gradual path, keeping with this thing we are talking about, is what Adya would often do for me is in his teachings, by his articulating something clearly, what would happen for me is that my mind would become conscious and catch up to an experience or an understanding that was already there. But the fact of the mind registering that would become really powerful mm-hmm. because then it would be like 100% of me could join that. Yeah, Does that make it, sense? Totally. I really feel like the mind has a, a big part to, the intellect and the mind has a big part to play in sharpening the consciousness we can bring to something. Because the body can be conscious and the mind can still not be conscious. So often I think it's a case of the mind playing like a catch-up job to <laughs> a reality. Yeah, and sometimes the other way around. Sometimes people are kind of... Sometimes the other way around. Yeah, they're a little top-heavy in terms of their reading and thinking and all without enough experience. But I really feel like a balanced development involves both and the two of them keeping abreast of one another. Understanding and experience. They're like the two legs which we walk on. Right. And about this gradual versus direct thing, I mean, I've been in panel discussions and debates and all kinds of stuff about the direct versus progressive paths. What I'm trying to say is I've never actually seen an example of a direct path leading one directly to any kind of full realization. I mean, sure, (laughs) in a way you can start a meditation practice and have a direct experience of pure consciousness from day one, but then you've got decades of progress yet to make while you continue to deepen and integrate that experience. So I don't know if there's really a, a conflict between direct and progressive paths. It seems to me that they're just two aspects of any path that actually works. Yeah, I don't see any conflict really. Uh, to me, it feels more like the essential realm of a deep realization is timeless yeah. and spaceless. Uh-huh. And so that happens timelessly and spacelessly. Right. But eventually, in order for it to express in its counterpart of form, because form is nothing but a counterpart of emptiness as a counterpart. I mean, that's the language I'm using. So when emptiness translates into form, it has to translate in the dimensions of time and space as far as we are concerned, or as best as we know. So it's going to take, but what time and space in the way we're realizing is a stretching of the here and now. To me, time is a stretching of now and space is a stretching of here. And so what was recognized instantly has to now play itself out, (laughs) stretch itself out in time and space. So I really don't see any contradiction. It's interesting what you said about how you hear something from Adya and you gain a certain understanding and you suddenly realize that, oh, that has actually been my experience. I didn't even realize it until I had the understanding. So not to belabor this point too much, but this is one example of how knowledge or understanding supplements and supports the experiential development. It actually enables you to recognize something you're already experiencing, which you hadn't even recognized. Right. And then, of course, because we now have so much spiritual information accessible at one finger click, we can go the other way too, where we have a lot of knowledge 
we can learn about traditions and we can learn about all, you know, we can be really up to speed on everything spiritual, <laughs> but I've not experienced much of it ourselves at all. So then it's the other part that has to do the catch up job. So the experience has to catch up to the knowledge. Yeah, of I was, both things. <laughs> I was uh, listening to Swami Sarvapriyananda last night and he was telling the story about this um, Swami Tariyananda Ji who was an old man, very enlightened, and he had all kinds of health problems. He had these boils on his body that had to be lanced and very painful thing. He refused any kind of local anesthetic, but he was just sort of beyond it. And then one day he had some procedure done and the, the doctor started. He said, oh, oh, what are you doing? And the doctor said, I thought you didn't feel this stuff. He said, no, you got to tell me first so I can sort of transcend and go beyond it. But then there was this other guy who had seen his example of what he was doing and he had to have some kind of operation on his stomach or something and he said no 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 i'm not the body i don't need to have any anesthetic it won't bother me so the doctor started cutting he said no no wait stop i need the anesthetic and the doctor said i thought you could go beyond it and he said you know i've just been reading too many books and the knowledge in the books stays in the books i need the anesthetic it's not my experience yeah no kidding <laughs> sometimes it's interesting for me to see this because there are people who can sometimes have this notion that somehow wellness, spiritual evolution must go hand in hand with some sort of idea of physical wellness. I feel like there's a, certainly a correlation there, but I think it can sometimes be taken too far, you know, like out of context, yeah. because the body ultimately has to die. And so, you know, something's going to kill us. That's we're gonna, just yeah, the reality of it. We're yeah. Get, like you know, Ramana Maharshi had cancer and all kinds of Nisargadatta, I think, died of cancer. So I think there is a correlation between greater health and spirituality, but there are obviously exceptions to that. Not only old age, but some people are very highly enlightened and have severe health problems for years and years. I can see how that can be an invitation to delve deeper. I mean, if, if there's some aspect of the body that's not working, that's not functioning, and there's pain, that's an invitation to look deeper because there is usually something to be seen there. But I think to get stuck in an idea that if I'm ill, then there's something that's wrong or missing is what I'm speaking about. I think it's not necessary to have that idea because that can be a real obstacle. Yeah. I think that one explanation that might be offered is that, you know, there's Parabdha Karma, which we come into this life with, mm -hmm. and uh, it's just going to do, it's just going to run its course. But yeah. then there's also, I forget the name for it, you might know, that there's new karma, which we might create or not create, depending on how we play our mm -hmm. cards. There's certain things that we have to go through, but there are other things that we just cause ourselves to go through, perhaps unnecessarily. And, you know, this gets us into the realm of free will, which some people deny mm -hmm. exists, but I've heard you talk about it. I think yeah. it is something we do have, and it can make a big difference on how the, our lives unfold. I do think it's one of the biggest gifts for humankind. And like any gift, it's a double-edged sword. So it has its potential to be both dangerous and extraordinary. So my view of free will, Rick, is that we, unlike most other, all creatures, as far as we know, on the planet, have the ability to live life in an other than natural way. So we can choose to not align with the natural flow of life. That's what I would call free will. We can make choices and decisions from our mental makeup, which may seem separate at times, you know, which may feel to us to be separate. So I really look at this a spiritual journey in one, in one way for me is this 
is the changing of free will in a sense. By the time we come to a certain point, I think the shift that happens in us is that free will becomes used towards aligning with life much, much more rather than aligning away from the natural flow of life, which is what we all start out with doing. It feels to me like free will is transitioning through the spiritual journey. There's a conscious way in which we begin to use our free will to align with the natural flow of life. The whole thing about the individual, you know, we start out being an individual who considers herself or himself to be separate from everything else, life, God, each other. And then at some point we come into a realization of our essential emptiness and then we, you know, come into this realization of we're all one. You know, I mean, we can have these shifts of understanding. And I think from there where we actually, for me, it feels like the circling back of that is really coming back to the individual with the sovereignty we were talking about earlier. But this time around, it's about having life expressed through us, through the individual in a way that actually aligns with the flow of life. So again, you know, we can yeah. look at it in terms of free will or individual. Uh, aligns is the key word there. When we talk about this subject, I always think about row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. So the stream is carrying the boat along. And if you do nothing, you're going to crash into the side. You're just going to go off and get caught in the brambles. But you could also like get really willful about it. And I'm rowing the boat this way. I'm rowing the boat that way. And that, that'll cause you problems because you'll be, again, crashing into things and hitting rocks and stuff. But if you just row gently, tuning into where the stream is going, where the stream wants to go, and just kind of yeah. you know, using whatever guidance you are capable of to keep the boat in the stream on track, then it's kind of like a frictionless flow. That's beautiful. I love it. It's really simple and to the point. <laughs> Looks like a question came in here. First one is from Pietro in uh, Urba, Italy. Pietro says, I feel very connected to your point of view. I think poetry, art, and figurative languages may help people connect with their spiritual side. What do you think about the effort of science to study consciousness and awareness? I love it. I think it's wonderful. I, I think science and spirituality have the same essential goal, which is to come to greater truth. Science tends to do it in a more focused, much more on the objective, and spirituality tends to do it focused much more on the subjective. I think there's a beautiful meeting point between the two. So when science seeks to understand spirituality more, I look forward to what they come up with so that we can all benefit from that marriage. Because the, the attitude of science is one that I find beautiful. That very clear experimentation, that curiosity, that particular way of, of, of um, looking at, inquiring into something is something that I think perhaps you'd agree, Rick, that spiritual explorers are, are also doing. In, but we bring that same attitude to us, to our individual experience inside, right? Um, so I feel like I, I, you know, I feel like my, my way of looking at my experience is pretty scientific, <laughs> except that it's subjective, um, you know. And so I cannot go out there and make claims that, that, uh, that you know, I can support in a sort of a reproduce in an experiment objectively outside me. That, that's not possible. Not for me anyways. But, but you take an so empirical approach. You're not just hanging on beliefs. You're sort of saying, all right, maybe this is possible. Let me see if I can experience it. I'm excited about uh, what science has to share yeah, me too. about there's a whole category the categorical page on VATGAP where you can sort of look at various categories of of the interviews and there's one that's sort of 
uh, spiritual science or scientists. And there's all kinds of people in there like Dean Radin and uh, Rupert Sheldrake mm-hmm. and Marjorie yeah. Willicott and David Lorimer and um, all kinds of people like that. So um, Pietro might want to check out that category because we get deep into some discussions about science and spirituality. Okay, there's another one um, from uh, Prachi in Torrance, California. What are your views on how to connect to the limitless information of the universe? Wow, that's an interesting way. That's an interesting way of phrasing the question. Um, yeah, I would say put your ear to the ground. Literally, I mean to the ground. Like, you know, a great way to start would be to literally go out on on walks in nature. <laughs> where the influence of uh, conditioned ways of thinking in the mind are, are at a minimum. And we kind of uh, ha- can have the intention. And I think the environment supports that intention. When we go out in nature, um, we can think or we can uh, access something deeper than thinking mind alone. Yeah. And I would add that in whatever way you can tune into that field of pure consciousness or Brahman or samadhi or whatever we want to call it, that field actually is the repository of all the information in the universe. We could say it's the home of all the laws of nature. And if you can somehow align yourself or become conscious with that of that, then um, you will be tuned in. It's not like you will possess all the information of the universe, which you really wouldn't want. That would be major overload. But you, you can your life will flow in a way that takes full advantage of that information, even if you're not conscious of of the specifics of it. And, you know, there are so many practices, meditation and contemplation and inquiry and so on. Yeah, whatever works for you. Another question came in earlier from Dan in London. Dan was wondering, uh, is fear of form, fear of form, ultimately fear of death because bodies are mortal? I think it is. Yeah, I do think they're very similar. I think it's the same fear, essentially, because, you know, it's it's one thing really going on. I think it's specific in the way it can be oriented. To me, the fear of death is essentially the fear of knowing ourselves as emptiness. And the fear of life is essentially knowing ourselves as form, because form always must include limitation. Yeah. Limitation in time so, as well. This form will end. Limitation in time. Exactly. Limitation in time and limitation in terms of expression you know, limitation in expression. And this can also feel like a bodily limitation, like I mean, like literally feeling cramped in a small space, all the way to a limitation in terms of bigger space. So I agree. I think there are two sides of the same fear, you know. Yeah, there's another Upanishad, which there's a line, which is um, there's no joy in smallness. You may have heard that one, but just that um, it's our birthright to be vast, to be cosmic, to be unbounded. And deep down somewhere we know that. And if we're not realizing it, then there's a, a kind of a fundamental frustration that, you know, that innate nature is being thwarted. Yeah. And, you know, what I've been coming to appreciate more and more, Rick, is that there's something really drawn here to that, to that freedom, that beautiful infinity. You know, there's something deeply drawn, I think, for all of us. At one level, there's a deep draw. And I've really started to see the enormous intelligence and beauty of being in human form, contained as it is and limited and fragile and with all of its issues, 
I feel like every day I feel more appreciative of this ability for this human form where we can actually be conscious of the infinity, the limitless, the boundless that we are, and yet be in this package called the human self, you know, the human mind body, because the containment gives it a certain, how would I say it? I don't know how to put it really. I, I, I really struggle for how to put this, but there's it a It becomes certain, a living reality. It, it becomes an experiential, stable, stable reality. I feel somewhere that that's, I have no proof. I can't prove this, obviously, but it feels to me like that spirit's intention. Time and space are ways in which spirit gets to experience itself stably. Otherwise, without time and space, <laughs> there is no stability. Paradoxical as that is, that feels like what I'm tuning into these days, which is just this amazement of the human form, being able to be conscious of, of the limitlessness and be able to live that out and experience it stably through form. I think that may be why we have a universe. There's that famous quote from Brian Swim. He said, you leave hydrogen alone for 14 billion years and you end up with rose bushes, giraffes and opera. But I think the universe could be seen as a, this giant evolution machine, which is constantly evolving forms, which are more and more and more capable of embodying the unboundedness so that it becomes a living reality rather than just an unmanifest reality. Right. And there's greater exactly. joy in that. And there's great joy in that. There's such joy in that. You know, there's an aspect of the unbounded that can be chaotic also, right? I mean, it can be really chaotic to have so much freedom. And so I think form is also a beautiful way in which that freedom becomes contained and can become more at least in the human context, responsibly used. There's that aspect about being in human form, knowing your limitless source and your essential unboundedness and, and having that translate into a responsible responsible way of being in form. That's attractive to me. That's, that has a deep draw for me. I guess another way of putting it is that boundaries alone are stifling, repressive. Unboundedness alone is not livable. It's not a living reality. <laughs> exactly. uh, but boundaries and boundless properly integrated becomes a marvelous opportunity for being an instrument of the divine. So tell us more about what you do with people. If people are listening to this and they, they want to say, oh, I want to plug into her. Is she offering courses? Does she give webinars? You know, does she, what, does she have a mailing list? Uh, you know, what kind of things do you do? All of the above. So thank you for letting me speak to and that. You have a website, which <laughs> so I'll offer, be linking to website. from your page on Backout. Yeah, it's called Moving Mountain Academy. I offer long programs. I offer short courses. There's one starting in May. I offer weekly satsang, which is free, a weekly meditation session, which is free. I'm sorry, a monthly satsang, which is Is this free. on Zoom or something? Yes, it's all on Zoom for now. I will keep on adding courses and programs. Right now we have an ongoing program, and there's one upcoming in May. And what do you do in these so, programs? What do you teach? So what I do is I'm sharing from, like, if, around all, all of the stuff we spoke about, Rick. But every program or short course typically has a theme of exploration, which we sort of dive into together, which is specific to that program. So, for example, the one I have upcoming in May is called Softening Towards Humanity. It kind of touches on what we were speaking of earlier, which is this way of looking at our problems, taking responsibility without blame. That's one. The one I'm currently doing is Beyond Thinking Mind. And there are a few in the offing. 
But there's also a monthly satsang. And so some of my offerings are free. Some of them are paid. And even for the paid ones, there are scholarships. That's available also. Good. And this can all be found on Moving Mountain Academy, right? Or will yes. be. I notice yeah. there are parts of your website that are under yeah, the still. They are. It's a new website. So, you know, we'll be adding content and adding more stuff in the, the weeks and months and to even come. now people can get on your email list there and then be notified as, as things yes. come up. They can, yes, that, that's true. Great. Mm, that's well, so. is there anything else that yeah. you want to say that you haven't said? No, I think we covered a lot of ground, Rick. I, I feel really grateful to you for just the show. And um, I just want to say, you know, when I first started watching your show, I was so hungry for this kind of conversation because I didn't have too many places where I could have this kind of thing. I say thanks to you for hosting this for so long and bringing so many of these perspectives out in the open where people who are hungry like me could go to and, and listen yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> well, hopefully you're still a little bit hungry. <laughs> you have not totally sated. No, no, no chance Good. of that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's kind of like you can be full and hungry at the same time, can't you? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. Do you still send out emails that have those poems in them? No, I don't anymore. I discontinued. Oh, okay, because um, I wondered maybe I accidentally but, but, slipped off your list or something. No, but when I started, I'll put you on. Yeah, Is please. That okay? yeah. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And um, you know the drill. Go to batgap.com, check out the menus, see what's what. There's all kinds of interesting things, past and future and present. So we'll see you next time. And thanks again, Amita. Thank you so much. And I want to say thanks to Irene okay. as well. Okay, Amita you. says thanks. She's kind of an unsung hero because, you know, she does as much as I do with this whole program, you know, behind the scenes, mm -hmm. kind of organizing all, all kinds of things in our lives and in Bat Gap and selecting the guests and kind of checking them out. She has good judgment about weeding out the nutcases, I guess would be one point. <laughs> anyway, and our other, you know, not always, a few of them slip through the cracks like me. You know? um, <laughs> then uh, we have some other wonderful volunteers too. I might as well mention them since this has come up. Angel Mark Lloyd, who uh, does our video post-production. There's a volunteers page where you can see these people and links to their websites. And uh, Larry Kelly, who does the audio post-production. And um, Jerry, Jerry Bixman, who does a whole, you've met mm -hmm. both of these people now and who does yeah. a marvelous job kind of, Wonderful. uh, yeah. getting everybody organized, sometimes spending hours with people getting their equipment working right and all, and a, a, a bunch of other people who, who occasionally do translation. Dan in London, Dan has been doing a marvelous job. For years, he was the guy who forwarded the questions and about a month or two ago, he started making main points. So that's his during the interview so that I can put main points on the web page and in the email that we send out. So I couldn't be doing all this myself. And I really appreciate all these wonderful helpers. We too as a viewer. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank we'll see each other again, I'm sure. Maybe you'll come out to the SAN conference when we start having those again. I hope so, yes. <laughs> Alrighty, take care. Take care. Bye-bye.